The views and opinions expressed on Analyze This are entirely those of the on-air participants and do not reflect those of the station's board, management, staff, or underwriters. And good Friday morning and welcome to another edition of Analyze This, an end of the week edition, a start of the month edition. Yeah, both will be going on at the same time. Today is Friday, March the 1st, 2024. We are officially in the second sixth of 2024. 60 days has passed and now we got 306 more days to go in 2024. It's a beautiful day in paradise, partly cloudy, you know, upper 70s, but it's nice. You know what I'm saying? And it is VI History Month, and I'm going to uh, recognize one of the great uh, Virgin Elders uh, in a little bit. Uh, we got um, this, uh, Gabriel Carrad will be joining us in our number one, and uh, Senator uh, Franklin Johnson, Frankie J, uh, out to the West, uh, joining us in our number two. Um, normally, we do have the power hour. On the first Friday of the month, but it's going to be next week, Friday, March the 8th, okay? So, looking forward to that. Today in VIA, History Month, you recognize Ed- Edward Wilmot Blyden, born in 1832, uh, widely known as the father of Pan-Africanism. And he was born on August 3rd uh, of 1832 in St. Thomas in what are now the U.S. Virgin Islands. Blyden was the third of seven children was born to Romeo and Judith Bladen, a tailor and school teacher, respectively. The family lived in a predominantly Jewish and English-speaking community and attended church at the integrated Dutch Reformed Church. Bladen's parents were free and literate at a time when most blacks on the island were enslaved and illiterate. In 1842, the family moved to Puerto Bello, Venezuela, where Bladen first discovered his facility with languages. He also found that black free Venezuelans performed much the same menial labor as enslaved blacks in the Virgin Islands. Upon his return, upon the family's return to St. Thomas, Blyden became a student of Reverend John P. Knox, the pastor at Dutch Reformed Church. Reverend Knox impressed with Blyden's scholarly potential, his mentor, and through him Blyden decided to become a clergyman. In May of 1850, Bladen accompanied Mrs. Knox, the clergyman's wife, to the U.S. to enroll in Rutgers Theological College in New Jersey, but was refused admission because of his race. Bladen turned his attention to Africa. The West African nation of Liberia had become independent in 1847. Bladen accepted an offer in 1850 to come to Liberia to teach. Soon after his arrival in January 1851, Blyden was employed at Alexander High School in Monrovia. There he began self-directed studies of theology, the classics, geography, and mathematics. In 1858, Blyden was ordained a Presbyterian minister and appointed principal of Alexander High School. He was also appointed editor of Liberian Herald, then the only newspaper in in the nation, by Liberian President Joseph Roberts. Drawing on both scriptures and science, 
blatant challenge to arguments about black inferiority that were increasingly popular in Europe and North America during this period. He argued black equality and used examples of little known but successful persons of African ancestry. Between 1856 and 1887, Blyden authored four books, A Voice from Bleeding Africa in 1856, A Vindication of the African Race, being a, being a brief examination of the arguments in favor of African inferiori inferiority in 1862, Africa for the Africans in 1872, and Christianity, Islam, and the Negro Race in 1887, as well as numerous articles to advance his cause. Blyden also challenged black and mulatto elites in Liberia who hoped to monopolize political power. During the 1860s and early 1870s, Blyden was Liberia's Secretary of State and Professor of Classics at Liberia College. From these posts, he called for the emigration of skilled and intelligent black West Indians and African Americans to Liberia. Not surprisingly, his proposals drew determined opposition from the Liberian elite. Nonetheless, in 1885, Blyden ran for president of Liberia. After his defeat, he went into self-imposed exile in neighboring Sierra Leone. Edward Wilmot Blyden died in Sierra Leone on February 7th, 1912, which means that he was 79 years old at the time of his passing. Edward Wilmot Blyden, a great uh, Virgin Island, and the father of Pan-Africanism. We're going to try to uh, recognize uh, as many great uh, Virgin Islanders between now and uh, Transfer Day, which actually happens to fall on, on a Sunday uh, this year, right? So on the last two days of the uh, month, uh, we're not going to uh, be live. Uh, that's the 30th and the 31st, Saturday Sunday, but... Um, Definitely want to recognize uh, the great uh, Virgin Islanders and uh, Edward Wilmer Bladen, right, is one of the, the masters over the years. And I read this on um, like, well, numerous websites where you could read his uh, uh, biography, but I got this from www.blackpast.org. Okay? Uh, so, some good history, man. Start the month, you know what I'm saying? It is uh, VA. Uh, history month. I don't know what the Department of Education is doing uh, in that regard. I'm going to reach out to the uh, commission and uh, hopefully uh, uh, she go uh, let me know what's going on. But we definitely going to recognize uh, great uh, folks. Of course, Alexander Hamilton coming up a little bit. That might be a two-day deal uh, because uh, in his, I think he's like 48. Uh, how old he was when he died? Alexander Hamilton. I think uh, either 48 or 49. Um, his history is rich as well. A lot went on uh, with him. So, um, mm, 47. Yeah, Alexander Hamilton. Um, he was born in 1757 and died in 1804. Born January 11th, died on July 12th. Born in uh, Charleston, St. Kitts and Nevis. Dog school. Nevis Massive. Ginger Land. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was 47 years old. He died, at Greenwich, he died in Greenwich Village. Uh, 
in New York. Uh, everybody knows of the the duel with um, that crazy Aaron Burr. So we'll talk about Hamilton uh, at some point down the road. Arguably, the greatest Virgin Islander, not native Virgin Islander, but the greatest Virgin Islander of all time. Alexander Hamilton. Mm. Got a lot of his song, foundational education. Right here in Christianstead. Dong Dong Christianstead. And uh, Gun Grange, too. So, uh, like I said, I'm not surprised that March is a very history month in America. March is a special month. You know what I'm saying? But, um, <clears throat> we're gonna, um, There's actually a a story about uh, his time, uh, Alexander Hamilton's time here on St. Croix, which I believe was about seven or eight years, because he was born in Nevis in 57, right? And his mother, Rachel, uh, uh, she had a rough go of it. And she fell in love uh, with uh, Alexander Hamilton's father when the family had left St. Croix and moved to St. Kitts. Right? So I think Rachel may have been a, a native or an Islander. Okay? Um, yeah, and then uh, the father was moved, the father was sent to St. Croix to collect a debt on behalf of his employer and he brought his wife and two children with him because Alexander Hamilton had a had a brother named uh, James Jr. I believe he was the older brother. And uh, when they moved, that was in 1765 and then when they moved back in 1766 he actually abandoned uh, Rachel and the boys. History, um, but they were they were living on Company Street, right? For those of you who don't know, uh, Company Street is a one street in Christianstead that is not that does not have a twin street in Frederickstead, right? Literally every other street uh, uh, is uh, a, a twin street in the twin cities of Christianstead and Frederickstead, right? Strand. King, Queen. Right? That's how it works in Frederickstead. Right? But in Christianstead, it's Strand, King, Company, and then Queen. Okay? So, um, they were living on uh, Company Street. Uh, um, but he actually overcame, uh, when he was a young boy, uh, uh, 11 years old, uh, he actually overcame um, a bout with yellow fever. He and his mother. Uh, uh, but uh, his mother did not uh, overcome it. And he lost his mother. And that's how he and his uh, brother were left orphaned, you know. And then, um, but we such a great writer and all that stuff, and they saw his work, right? Uh, and uh, they found out. Uh, 
um, about his work, and he said, no, we go get he. We go get he out there, yeah. And he, uh, he left St. Croix at the age of 17. 17 or 15? He said 15. Okay, okay. That's, a, that's something um, we're going to delve into, right? They're not actually sure what year he was born. It was either 1757 or 1755, right? So he, so if it was 1757, that means he left for college at the age of 15. If it was 1755, that means he left at the age of 17. And uh, he went to the mainland. Uh, and uh, the rest, uh, it was history. But it was because he had gotten a gig, uh, a job at the age of 11 um, by um, <coughs> now Nicholas Kruger. Had a local import export mercantile firm, and, and this, that's when they started to recognize, you know, this this young man. He's not ordinary, and he was a uh, loved to read, and uh, self-educated. And once they found out uh, what the deal was, they said, "We go get here out of your pops." You know what I mean? So, uh, and so that's the Saint Croix part for the most part. So there was also a hurricane that he. Uh, that they dealt with it. I think it was 1772. Yeah, the August 30th, 1772. There was a hurricane that uh, devastated Christian State and all that. Um, yeah, so that's the synchronic part of it. But his contributions on the mainland, right, uh, will make your head spin in a short period of time. And that was only for between 1772 and, and uh, 1804. So he had a 30-year run because uh, you know, he didn't make it to 50. You know what I'm saying? So from his teens to mid to late 40s, uh, his accomplishments over a 30-year period match anybody in the history of America. Anybody. From a leadership perspective, from a long-term impact constitutionally, and uh, look like look like he had light combat. I remember reading a a part there where he was actually frustrated that um, the early presidents, right? Because uh, he. He lived during the first three presidents, right? Because you had um, Washington and Washington from 1789 to 1797. Then you had John Adams from 1797 to 1801. Then you had Jefferson from 1801 to 1809, right? And... Now, he died in 1804, so he was only alive for the first eight, four, and three, 15 years, right, of presidential leadership in the history of America. And he had major frustration that he was uh, dealing with, um, matter of fact, he had even threatened, I, I going out, if I don't give me um, regiment leadership and all that, I going. 
you know, and because he was so valuable in so many areas, they actually acquiesced. And a lot of his uh, <coughs> combat uh, and war life um, was centered in New Jersey. Right? So I'm looking forward to breaking that down uh, later on down the road. There was an editor's note about his time uh, on St. Croix. They, they said there is some debate among historians as to the birth year of Alexander Hamilton, as well as whether or not both James Jr. and Alexander were adopted by Thomas Stevens or just Alexander alone, right? And the information, including this blog, was taken from the majority opinions based on the research available. And we had an impersonator. We had a, um, uh, Alexander Hamilton impersonator in, uh, here uh, once upon a time, and that was impressive. He knew everything about uh, the great one, you know. So, looking forward to when I'm going to put that to there. I might save that towards like the middle of the month. But it's just impressive when you look at uh, how much uh, he's been through. And I'm looking forward to talking about uh, Leidersdorf and, and recognizing them. Uh, Sustance Ben, um, the father of Impressionism, the one and only Camille Pizarro. Mm. All of our governors, Evans, King, um, Louis, Farley, Schneider, Turnbull, De Young, Map, Brian. Yeah, we, we're gonna get a governor at peace though. We get a governor at peace. It's too much. Hey, governor, you might be young or so, but. It's part of your history, so we we gonna, we gonna give you a recognition. Cause you know, you graduate from St. Dunstan, so you gonna get recognized, right? Plus, he's a pilgrim, you know. Okay, check. So we got to recognize as well. So, welcome to our Via History Month. Here uh, and analyze this, um, and we give uh, kudos and recognition to the great Edward Wilmot Wilma Blyden, uh, born in eighteen thirty-two, uh, passed away uh, in. Uh, 1912, and um, actually his son was a diplomat as well, a so a lot of history there as well. So we'll take a break, come back, hopefully Ms. Karad will join us on this very first March edition of Analyze This 2024. Be back right after this. St. Croix has something for everyone. With two locations, the Bank of St. Croix provides personal and business checking accounts, online banking, and mobile apps for banking on the go, a nonprofit community investment checking account, and a 24-hour banking cash management platform. Bank of St. Croix Gallows Bay, Bank of St. Croix Peters Rest, and online, bankofstcroix.com. For details about our nonprofit community investment checking account, our service specialists are ready to help. Bank of St. Croix, member FDIC. He said that black smoke was constantly coming out of the burn pits 24-7. And my reaction to it was like, wow, that doesn't sound very safe. I wonder what that's about. And in my mind, I couldn't imagine at the time that type of system operating could potentially harm our service members. Journalism that seeks and reveals. That's On Point with me, Meghna Chakrabarty. Weekdays at 1 p.m. on WTJX-FM 93.1, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. 
doom scrolling. Let's break that habit, folks. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition Sunday, where if you want to know what's going on in the world and why it matters, all you have to do is give your thumb a rest and perk up your ears. We've got the news, but we've also got curiosity, joy, and surprise. Tune in for Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition, Sundays at 8 a.m. right here on WTJX-FM, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. Music can be an incredibly personal experience. A song can inspire you, it can comfort you, it can make you feel understood, it can even take you back to a specific moment in your life. And it all begins with the artist. Join me, Raina Duras, as I get personal through in-depth interviews with your favorite musicians and find out where those songs come from on World Cafe. Weekdays at 10 p.m. on WTJX-FM 93.1. And we're back <clears throat> here uh, and analyze this. And uh, one of my people them sent me a text message. They said, um, "Good morning. It, w- it would be great to read about the contribution of the Frenchies or French dance that still exists in our territory and French tongue, along with the Dane, the Danish, and the Jews, since we have the oldest synagogue in the U.S. And I know you love history, of course." We're definitely going to talk about that, man. All that, they're going to come into play. You know what I'm saying? Got to do that. Ain't no doubt about that. You know what I'm saying? Um, by the way, I was reading up some more on uh, on Hamilton. And he actually wrote, you know, there were some excerpts from the long description of the hurricane, which gave Alexander Hamilton his start toward fame. Right? Uh, okay, the um, impressionist, his name is Wayne Nicholas. That's the, the, the um, Hamilton impressionist. Uh, he was in here and, you know, he liked to wear he, the, the suit. And matter of fact, when the um, when President Biden was here, not this go around, the time before, he actually hooked up with one of the uh, White House press corps. Uh, his name is Alex Prichet. He's actually a big shot. Now you see him on ABC News. He's actually on the campaign trail. Uh, and he met uh, Wayne Nicholas uh, impersonating Alexander Hamilton, and, and and he was actually on, on national news. You know what I'm saying so, yeah. But just to show you, right, how articulate this young man was in 1772, right? We got some excerpts, right, um, from uh, the description of the hurricane through the eyes of Alexander Hamilton. Okay, we're still waiting for Miss Carrad to call it. I mean, uh, we haven't heard her. So while she's not here, we can take advantage uh, of the opportunity. Right? Uh, Royal Danish American Gazette. Right? Honored sir, I take up my pen to give you an imperfect account of the most dreadful hurricane that memory or any <coughs> uh, any records whatever can trace which happened here on the 31st Ultimo at night. It began about dusk at north and raged very violently till 10 o'clock. Then ensued a sudden 
an unexpected interval, which lasted about an hour. Meanwhile, the wind was shifting around to the southwest point, from whence it returned with redoubled fury and continued so till near 3 o'clock in the morning. Good God, what horror and destruction. It's impossible for me to describe, or you to form any idea of it. It seemed as if a total dissolution of nature was taking place. The roaring of the sea and wind-fiery meteors flying about in the air, the prodigious glare of almost perpetual lightning, the crash of falling houses, and the ear-piercing shrieks of the distress were sufficient to strike astonishment into angels. A great part of the buildings throughout the island are leveled to the ground. Almost all the rest was very shattered. Several persons killed and, num and, and numbers utterly ruined. Whole families running about the streets unknowing where to find a place to shelter. The sick exposed to the keenness of water and air without a bed to lie upon or a dry covering to their bodies. Our harbor is entirely bare. In a word, misery in all its most hideous shapes spread over the whole face of the country. A strong smell of gunpowder added somewhat to the terrors of the night, and it was observed that the rain was surprisingly salt. Indeed, the water is so brackish and full of sulfur that there is hardly any drinking it. My reflections and feelings of this frightful and melancholy occasion are set forth in following self-discourse. Where now, O oh, vile worm, is all thy boasted fortitude and sufficiency? Why thus, thou terrible and stand aghast? How humble, how helpless, how helpless, how contemptible you now appear. And for why? The jarring of the elements, the discord of clouds. Oh, impotent, presumptuous fool, how darest thou offend the omnipotence whose not alone were sufficient to quell the destruction that hovers over thee or crush thee into atoms. See thy wretched, helpless state and learn to know thyself. Hark, ruin and confusion on every side. Tis this, tis, no, tis thy turn, tis thy turn next. But one short moment even now, O Lord, help. Jesus, be merciful. Thus did I reflect, and thus at every gust of wind did I conclude, till it pleased the Almighty to allay it. I'm afraid, sir, you will think this description more the effort of the imagination than a true picture of realities. But I can affirm with the greatest truth, there is not a single circumstance touched upon which I have not absolutely been an eyewitness to. Letter written by Alexander Hamilton to his father after the St. Croix hurricane of 1772. Tell us something, right? The first part we're talking about, right? Everybody who been in, who been here for Hugo could relate to it. And when Hugo kick in in earnest, that Sunday night, around 7, 8 o'clock, and she start to howl. And then I believe somewhere between 1 and 2. Right? 
talked about um, a sudden and unexpected interval. That's how he de- he, he um, described it. That's the eye. That's the eye of the storm when you believe it's over. Not realizing you had only experienced the kata. The bundle were coming after that. And here we say, from whence it returned with redoubled fury. It continued so till near 3 o'clock in the morning. For us, it was till about 5, 6, 7 o'clock. Somewhere around there. Now when they move away and you look outside, then you're seeing things you didn't know existed. Nature had done its damage. Surgery. Violent surgery. That's why Alexander Hamilton was talking about in 1772. We experienced that. 207 years, 217 years later, in 1989. 223 years later, in St. Thomas, in 1995 with Maryland. Then another 22 years after that, both islands within a space of two weeks because of Alma and, uh, and, and Maria. Wow. But to put it in pen, pen and paper, and a young man sending a letter to his father. So even though his father had abandoned them, the natural love, you know what I mean? Father was somewhere in the Caribbean. Must have gone back to um, St. Kitts on the U.S. Because Saint Fa- my father was in St. Vincent at the time. So St. Croix was devastated by a major hurricane which destroyed or damaged 500 buildings in 1772. And Alexander wrote, a long and vivid letter to his father and St. Vincent describing the horror. Yeah. Tell you, man, all the islands here, the connectivity is real. Check. So, looking forward to breaking that down when um, when Malik, Malik Siku joins me uh, on the 14th and we talk about that movement of people. Uh, in the 17, 18, and uh, 1900s. And then the second uh, time uh, Mali comes on, uh, on the 28th, we'll talk about our self-governance window um, beginning in 1971 um, <clears throat> with our first elected governor uh, coming about after the 1970 election. So it's a rich history, man. We are history month, you know. So you know what it is. Your boys are history majors, so I gonna I gonna relish the month. You know, you know how that works. Yep, I believe uh, I believe March also ends the third quarter uh, for the school year uh, with the new schedule, with with school starting earlier, and. Um, Upon return from the Christmas break, 
in January, the second semester, third quarter of the, the school year uh, commences. I believe March is when, uh, uh, the middle of March, sometime this month. And then uh, we got like two more months until we get the final exams and then school done the latter part of me. So that's the next thing to, got to um, get a department of education in here. Uh, at some point, because it is your history, but uh, um, get him, uh, had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago. Like, they remember had a weather issue, and um, Doug Cole and I were on, and uh, Commissioner uh, Wells Hedrington had called in and, uh, to tell us about um, some decisions they made with school closings and all that, and then she also enlightened us about um, the new schools that we're going to be constructing here in the territory and a significant amount of money that's being uh, set aside uh, uh, for the reconstruct. Uh, as part of recovery um, for education, right? The, th the four main areas for the recovery uh, should be infrastructure, energy, um, health, and education. Though the lion's share, right, of of uh, what is now $15 billion should be in those areas. And uh, we try our best uh, to get the folks back on. We have great discussions, by the way, um, on waste management as well. You know, we have a great conversation when they come on. But we have great uh, conversations, as I should say. Um, uh, the second instructions. We got great conversations uh, with public works. Uh, whenever a uh, commissioner comes on with uh, Joe McLean, and whenever the education department comes on, uh, whenever um, WAPA uh, comes on. Now, what, what we, I think one conversation that, that I'm going to work on, right, uh, is a joint conversation uh, with Public Works and WAPA, right? Now, the, the, the thing about it, right, and, and I don't know why they would feel intimidated but but I you know have been having been a, a member of the first branch one thing I saw on numerous occasions right as a member of the body is how uncomfortable articulate and outspoken people would get when they come into the well you know it, it, it was really an intimidating dynamic um, for people who are well-spoken, knowledgeable. It was like they were thinking we're going to do something. And, you know, maybe we had members of the body who were like that, right? But I'm not with that. I understood the process to be committee meetings are where we, where we receive testimony so that when we go into session to take action on legislation, we could be as informed as possible. So I need you to be comfortable. So that when you are making available to us uh, the information that we need so we could be informed, I need you to be, you know, at ease. And that's why, you know, by extension, the same approach I have here on this program. I need you to be as comfortable as ever. You know, so we need 
the you know the, some type of joint explanation to educate the public as to how they go about digging up the road them when they are putting in new infrastructure to get them old pipes and all that stuff out of the road. Check what I'm saying? We need that. Because I get too many phone calls and when I see people and we're talking about that, that's the one area of comprehensive frustration with respect to the roads because of the work that needs to be done. I remember I was talking with Danny Deraville about three weeks ago and he's an entrepreneur in Christian and he said, look, I know you know, it didn't bother me what was taking place in Christianstead as much because I knew it had to happen. And I told him, well, yeah, it didn't bother you, right? But it wasn't so much about the retailers not knowing, not knowing the, uh, I'm not, the retailers knowing that the work needs to be done. It was the misinformation and the timing. Jack, they knew that that was going to happen. The question was, why at certain times in particular during the window when they're supposed to make their money? Know what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, we I would like to have that joint conversation with how they work together. You know, same thing with um, our telecommunications, same thing with um, Waste Management Authority, right? All of them, right? You got piping, you got wiring, and those things happen along our roadways. That's just how infrastructure is. You know, and then you get into the residential neighborhoods, what have you, because you got, you know, poles up, okay, you got to, you know, light up um, the residential areas and all that stuff. So we need that, that conversation there where they could feed off each other and feel comfortable doing so and not in an adversarial uh, environment. And, you know, and analyze this. We try our best to not be adversarial. You know. So, I dare run him about because uh, guests can show up. So, we'll take a break <clears throat> and uh, we'll come back on. Uh, I guess, I don't know if it's Carrago going make it in the last segment, but hopefully, uh, Frank, Senator Frank, Franklin Johnson joins us in our number two. Be back right after this. mornings we're here for you with weekend edition two hours of news interviews new music new books rattling good stories interesting people challenging analysis laughs air shows and donkey rides for the kids so come along with us weekend edition saturday mornings from npr news weekend edition saturdays at 8 a.m on wtjx fm 93.1 With so much going on, it can be hard to keep up with who's doing what and why. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition Sunday, letting you know whether it's news from across the country and the world or a deep conversation about a novel, movie, or music, we got you. Grab your coffee or your earbuds and tune in to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Sundays at 8 a.m. right here on WTJX-FM, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. 
Hi, I'm Peter Sagal. You spent the week listening to the news. Don't you think you deserve to show off what you've learned on Wait, Wait, We Give You a Chance to Impress Your Friends with Your Knowledge of International Incidents, Political Gaffes, and the Latest Advancement in German Nudists? You'll be the life of the party or the death. Either way, you'll make an impression and you can thank Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturdays at 1 p.m. and Sundays at 2 p.m. right here on WTJX FM 93.1, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. Ah, sometimes you need a moment to just step back, relax, and listen to your favorite song. I'm Raina Duris, and on the next World Cafe, maybe I can help you find something new to love, or maybe remind you of something you've been missing. There's so much music out there to enjoy. So take a moment, take a breath, and tune in to World Cafe. Weekdays at 10 p.m. on WTJX FM 93.1. And we're back here on uh, Analyze This and uh, just looking over you know, I guess we, I guess I'll take this first hour to to, to look at uh, what we could do uh, with VI History Month, um, with March being VI History Month and all that stuff. And this this Alexander Hamilton thing is so rich. You know what I'm saying? And uh, <clears throat> there's a reason why um, his play, right, the Alexander Hamilton uh, play uh, on Broadway. Uh, is uh, I mean was I mean it probably still going on right uh, um, so unbelievable I remember I was in California and our list I was driving and um, yes sir they said Hamilton New York City tickets prices as low as $124 but anyway I was in California I was driving I was listening to ESPN and uh, one of the, the female, I think her name was Sarah. Uh, she was one of the um, ESPN radio hosts. I was listening to ESPN LA. And she said she was in, uh, she went to see the play. And she noticed some security guards came inside and stood up in the corners of the, the theater. And um, next thing you know, Tom Brady walking. Right? So you'll know. Hamilton was was rich. You know what I mean? That Tom Brady and at, at the time he was still married to that to the to the um to the model. Um <clears throat> Hamilton when 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 the the, the, the top playing football at that time. And some consider him to be the GOAT quarterback. Showing up to Alexander Hamilton play. You know it big, you know what I'm saying? So I was pulling up here about the impact, right? They say Hamilton's lasting impact on Broadway, right? It says since its debut in 2015, Lin-Manuel Miranda's groundbreaking musical Hamilton has made an indelible mark on Broadway and the theater industry at large. Its innovative storytelling, diverse casting, and genre-defying music have left a lasting impact that continues to reverberate throughout the world of theater. 
This article will explore the various ways in which Hamilton has influenced and changed Broadway and the theater industry as a whole. And it's a five-minute read, right? www.broadwayseats.org. You say Hamilton has transformed the way stories are told on Broadway, breaking boundaries and challenging traditional norms in the process. So they said Lin-Manuel Miranda's masterful retelling of the life of Alexander Hamilton brings a modern sensibility to the Broadway stage. Now before I do that, right, <clears throat> I got to, I, I see the name Miranda, right? And for those of you who live in the Virgin Islands, you know, um, Miranda was a very popular uh, Latin name, a surname, right? A lot of um, folks from uh, Puerto Rico and, and Vieques, right? So L-I-N, Lin-Manuel, Right, I can I can put that here now and see. Um, Len Manuel Miranda, American songwriter. Uh, she's forty-four years old. Right, he's American songwriter, actor, singer, filmmaker, rapper, and libertist. And he created a Broadway musical in the Heights and Hamilton. Right, okay, born in New York City. I went to Wesleyan University. Okay, good thing. Right, and and I said, um, mm, infusing history with contemporary language, humor, and cultural references. Uh, this fresh approach to storytelling has made Hamilton more relatable and engaging for younger audiences, helping to attract a new generation of theater goers. So Hamilton has been widely praised for its diverse casting with actors of color portraying the founding fathers and other historical figures. This deliberate choice by Miranda and the show's producers has helped to promote greater representation and inclusivity on Broadway, inspiring other productions to follow suit and sparking important conversations about diversity in the theater industry. I don't know if you guys notice it, but when I start reading, I don't know if Danny notices it, my, my engineer, but I start speaking like an American, so, so don't hold it against me. Okay? Right? Uh, the music of Hamilton has had a profound impact on the way musicals are composed and the styles of music that can be incorporated into the genre. There's a fusion of hip-hop, R&B, and traditional music theater. They say Hamilton seamlessly blends hip-hop, R&B, and traditional music theater styles, creating a unique and groundbreaking sound that has influenced subsequent Broadway productions. This fusion of genres has expanded the musical vocabulary of Broadway and demonstrated that popular music styles can successfully coexist with traditional theatrical conventions. The Hamilton cast album has been a phenomenal success, reaching a, brand, a broad audience and setting new records for Broadway cast recording. Its popularity has helped to revive interest in cast albums as a viable form of entertainment and has paved the way for other shows to reach audiences beyond the theater. Hamilton has made strides in increasing accessibility to Broadway shows, particularly through its innovative ticket distribution met methods. The lottery system. They say the Ham for Ham lottery system introduced by Hamilton has been instrumental in making the show more accessible and affordable for a wider range of audiences. By offering a limited number of tickets, 
at a significantly reduced price. The lottery system has democratized the theater-going experience and inspired other productions to implement similar ticket distribution methods. They're using words that I don't normally use, you know what I'm saying? So don't hold it against me, right? Uh, it's an impact on other Broadway shows. Following Hamilton's example, several other Broadway productions have adopted lottery systems to distribute tickets, making theater more accessible to diverse audiences and helping to foster a more inclusive theater-going culture. Educational impact. Hamilton has also made a significant impact in the realm of education, inspiring learning and engagement with history among students and teachers alike. So the Hamilton Education Program, right? The Hamilton Education Program, also known as EDUHAM, is an initiative that provides students with an opportunity to learn about American history through the lens of Hamilton by engaging with the show's music themes and historical context. Students develop a deeper understanding and appreciation of the founding era. The program also enables students from low-income backgrounds to attend performances of Hamilton at a reduced cost, further broadening the show's impact and reach. And you know when I read the founding era, right? Keep in mind what we're going through now with uh, uh, former President Trump and how all of a sudden the, the Federalist Papers, right? Don't be surprised if you see a movie or some Broadway um, <clears throat> production coming up about the Federalist Papers, you know, because that history, you know, and, uh, and, and, and with the documentation, the language has been tapped into. You know, thanks to Donald Trump and his willingness to push the envelope and uh, wanting to do whatever he wanted to do, right? And, and bringing into question the interpretation of what the Hamiltons and the Madisons and the John Jays and all of them, you know, what they were thinking about when they wrote the Federalist Papers back in the day. Right? Cause that now is subject to significant constitutional uh, um, interpretation, review, what have you. Okay? Back to Hamilton, inspiring a new generation of theater goers, Hamilton has ignited a passion, a passion for theater among countless young people who may not have otherwise been exposed to live performances. It's accessible storytelling, diverse casting, and innovative music has resonated with a new generation, helping to ensure the future growth and vitality of the theater industry. Boosting tourism and the economy, the popularity of Hamilton, has had a positive impact on tourism and the economy both in New York City and in other locations where the show has been staged. Increased interest in Broadway, Hamilton has played a significant role in revitalizing interest in Broadway, drawing tourists from around the world who are eager to experience the show firsthand. The increased interest has had a ripple effect on the theater industry as audiences who come for Hamilton often stay to explore other Broadway offerings. The show's success has also spurred interest in Hamilton-related historical sites, such as Hamilton Grange National Museum and the Museum of American Finance. The, the influx of tourism has had a positive impact on local economies, generating revenue and creating jobs. This part is painful because St. Croix belongs up in this year. There's no doubt about it. St. Croix belongs in this part 
right just up. So you know what? I, I transition from the Yankee back to the local twine. Right? Yeah, if it's gonna be if it's spurring interest in Hamilton related historical sites, come on, man. We got to be up in this. Right? They say Hamilton has made its mark on pop popular culture with references to the show. Appearing in various forms of media and entertainment, the show's memorable lines, characters, and music have found their way into numerous television shows, movies, books, and even political discourse. These references attest to the enduring cultural relevance and influence of Hamilton. Hamilton has fostered a passionate and dedicated fan community with countless individuals creating fan art, music, and other Content inspired by the show, social media platforms like Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok have become, have become hubs for fans to share their love of Hamilton and connect with others who share their passion. This online engagement has helped to further solidify the show's place in popular culture. The success of Hamilton has inspired a wave of new works and revivals that seek to emulate its innovative storytelling, diverse casting, and genre-defined music, blah, blah, blah. Broadway and regional theaters have seen a surge in productions that push the boundaries of traditional music theater, demonstrating the lasting influence of Hamilton on the industry, from revolutionizing storytelling on Broadway to promoting accessibility and inclusivity. <clears throat> in the theater industry, Hamilton has left an indelible mark on the world of theater. Its innovative music, diverse casting, and educational impact have inspired a new generation of theatergoers, creators, ensuring that the legacy of Hamilton will continue to be felt for years to come. Which, you know, by reading this, a couple of things need to happen. Right? Number one, we need to get Lynn, Lynn Manuel Miranda uh, and analyze this so we can break this down some more. Seriously. You can, if you're talking about Hamilton, right? <clears throat> then, you know, at some point, you know, we will have that discussion about how he went about putting together the final product. Um, and if that's the case, um, then we need to know if, you know, how much of his maybe six, seven years on St. Croix um, was the focus. That's it. We know he did significant, uh, high impact, and we just said it right in the street. We know we know he do damage in a good way, right? Uh, as a founding father, but that foundational part of his life, right, right here on, on the Big Island, you know, we need to know what's going on there. Now check. Hold on, I'm trying to pull up something here. Hamilton on Broadway. To see what a dollar figure be. You check. Okay. Here we go. Hamilton, the groundbreaking show, has not only garnered critical acclaim, right? But the financial impact is real. The Hamilton Broadway cast has experienced great financial success, earnings, and salaries of cast members have contributed to the show's success. They say Hamilton has become a cultural phenomenon, blah, blah, blah. Right? Miranda is projected to earn, right? Lin-Manuel Miranda is projected to earn over $6 million this year alone. 
from his various roles in Hamilton. Aside from his salary as a lead actor, he also receives additional income from royalties and profits. Right? Mm. So they're talking about they're talking about Mario Miranda, but I want to know about you know what's going on. The salaries of the Hamilton cast members vary based on their roles industry standards. Broadway actors, including those in Hamilton, earn a minimum $1,900 per week. Right? And lead actors can receive additional bonuses when the show is nominated for a Tony Award. And their bonuses can increase the annual salary to at least $130,300. Wow. No, I, I, I call Docs and I tell you that I want to come on uh, to talk a little bit about Denevis uh, uh, impact uh, or how does Nevis look at uh, <clears throat> Hamilton given his his global fame and this is 250, 260, 270 years back. So I got ducks on the line. I'm going to come back have that quick five minute conversation with him and then we should have uh, Frankie Johnson joining us uh, in our number two. So don't run away. Hold on. First March edition of 2024 Analyze This. We'll take a break and be back right after this. Views and opinions expressed on Analyze This are entirely those of the on-air participants and do not reflect those of the station's board, management, staff, or underwriters. So I spent the past year trying to figure out what news designed for 21st century humans might look like. One of the things that really stuck with me was that we now know that humans actually need hope to get up in the morning. And I don't think as a journalist, I ever thought about it that way. We're always looking for new and better ways to understand the world we live in. That's On Point with me, Meghna Chakrabarty. Weekdays at 1 p.m. on WTJX FM 93.1, your NPR station in the Virgin Islands. Planes, a growing part of the climate emergency. Aviation is going to become one of the top polluters if we don't act right now. But could electric power change the equation? Electric motors are within that edge of possible. New technology. Flying taxis or cars. Could decide who wins. We are doing something to change the world. The great electric airplane race. Andover. Tune in March 6th at 11 p.m. on WTJX-TV Channel 12. 